0: Well, greetings online family, excited to be together this week and spend some time worshiping the Lord together. My hope is that you'd really choose to engage in this time.
1: It is so good to be with you. Worship team, thank you so, so much. Hi, everybody. I'm Josh. I have a couple of announcements for you guys. First of all, if there's anything that we could be praying for you for this week, we'd love to pray for you. We know that there's just stuff going on in your lives, and we would just love to partner with you in prayer. Please text any prayer request to 97000, and we will pray for you this week. There is so much going on here at ABF. If you are interested in knowing about those things, about ministries and events going on, please check out the website. The calendar is always updated. You can get any information you need there on the website. Also on the website, if you've been blessed by this ministry, this online ministry, these messages every week, and you'd like to give financially— Man, that is such a huge part of keeping this thing going. And so if you're interested in giving, you can do that online on the website under the Give tab. Uh, Man, that would be a huge blessing for us. Thank you so much for continuing to partner us in giving. Uh, Now we're going to get to our time in the Word, and I would just love to pray for that time together. Let's pray. Dear Father, um, Lord, just thank you that we get to continue to do this. Um, Thank you that these videos get to continue to go out and that people can access them so easily that your word is at our fingertips. Um, Lord, I pray that you would just use the teaching of your word today uh, in just a sweet way. Would you meet us exactly where we're at and say exactly those things to our heart that we need to hear, Lord? We pray that you just convict us and stir in our hearts now. We love you, and we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.
0: All right, well, thank you, Josh, and thank you, worship team. Uh, so good to be together with uh, each of you online as a weekly occurrence. I really hope this is becoming a habit and a part of your routine of uh, being in God's Word, and uh, such a, a gift to be able to do that together. Well, as you know, we're working through the book of Hebrews, and we're in chapter three here this week, and hopefully, getting a chance to work all the way through it. You may notice by the title slide of the sermon that uh, we're titling this or calling this persevere. And uh, that's an important word, especially when we think about the start of a new year. And maybe I'm not going to have anybody raise hands or email me or, or anything, but I would guess that at this point of the year already, there's some of us that have beginning to slack off with some of our New Year's resolutions. I know it's been been hard. I've been trying to eat a little bit more healthy, and man, saying no to some of those good carbs is miserable. This last week, I was with a friend over at Los Agaves at the Target Center, and one of the things that they do, they always get me there, is they bring out this big basket of chips, and then they have three different flavors of guacamole and there are different salsas and they're all so enticing, so brightly colored, so hard to say no. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's been hard to stick to some of those commitments or or maybe it's been related to the the gym where you're wake up in the morning and you have the, the resolve to get there, but you have the McDonald's theme song. Don't you deserve a break today? And you have that echoing in your mind and you take the break again and again and again, and the habit never actually forms. You see, some of this perseverance thing is something that that trickles into every aspect of our life and especially relates as we talk about spiritual things. You may have once said, yes, I am in. Count me in. I'm following Jesus. But then you start to realize, man, this is a long race. This is a, a lot of commitment demanded. This is not something that comes easy or natural. And so there's this strong pull, this strong tug to go back to what's familiar, what's easy, operating back in the flesh, what you've done, the way you've operated the majority of your life. You see what, in our text here today, our author is writing to this young group of Jewish believers, and he's trying to encourage them persevere, keep going, knowing that they had done great persevering the initial uh, onslaught of of persecution, but now they're hitting kind of the season of life where monotony kind of sets in, there's habits that are starting to to drift, there's some of the monotony of uh, routine, and now it's more important than ever for them to resist the tug of going back, of drifting I'm excited to be in this week's text because I believe it's a a letter written to them, but definitely speaks to our experience present day. Let me just pray before we begin to explore. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to gather week after week into your word and believe that these uh, letters and these, uh, in this case, more of like a sermon are written with us in mind today not just one specific people group written to but for every generation something for us to take from and i ask that you'd allow us to really engage and see what you have for us right now that your holy spirit would speak to us directly in the moments to come we ask that in the strong name of jesus christ amen all right well starting in chapter 3 verse 1 in this message i've entitled persevere take a look at what it says it says therefore Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. We'll stop there for a little bit of uh, explanation. First, you notice that it begins with a reminder of their identity and their destination. He refers to them as holy brothers. You see, when we're wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that's the lens in which God sees us now as, as holy, as set apart. It's an awesome reality of being forgiven, being set free from sin. He refers to their, their heavenly calling. That's also awesome. We talk about that often, that we have this destination to one be, one day be united with Christ in heaven. Then he tells them to consider something. Consider means to give thought to something. You remember maybe uh, uh, in the New Testament hearing Jesus say, consider the lilies. We have all seen lilies, but most often uh, we've never, or most likely we've never stopped to actually think about how God actually cares for and provides for the lilies. There's something about considering that when you actually take time, when there's intentionality with that, There's usually something gleamed for it, something that you, some kind of a takeaway. In this case, he's asking them to consider what? The faithfulness of both Jesus and Moses. Now you might be saying, why is Moses in this conversation? You have to understand the audience for that. The Jewish people next to Abraham there was no man that was more revered than Moses. And both are great examples of faithfulness that were able to emulate. You see examples in the scripture of uh, things to, to emulate and things to resist. For sure, his faithfulness, uh, uh, the faithfulness of Moses was definitely one worth emulating. So how did the two of them demonstrate their faithfulness? It's interesting to see how they describe Jesus in this little section here. It says, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. I like the idea of confession. This last week in church, uh, in those services uh, here in person, Josh had the opportunity for every person in the worship center to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord. As I was sitting in the room, it was so powerful just to hear all the different voices with that same united confession of Jesus as Lord. If you think and you expounded on that confession, there's different terms and descriptions that you could add to it, not just Lord, but in this case, our confession of him as apostle and high priest. Now, apostle is not something you actually hear, hear very often as a description of Jesus, but the word apostle actually means that as means one that is sent under authority. Jesus was sent under the authority of God the Father. He was sent with a mission in mind. And so, as you look at Jesus' life, his entire life, as he describes it, even himself, is listening to the Lord, to the God the Father's promptings, and following through, faithful to every single calling. Another description that it gives of him is a high priest. If you listened last week, Josh mentioned that in chapter 2, verse 7, the same exact title. He unpacked, we unpacked it even a little bit more further in the book, but the idea of the high priest was someone that made animal sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. Really, if you think about the Old Testament, that job would have been pretty bloody and miserable. But in this case, it was what Jesus was, the ultimate high priest who marched all the way to the cruel Roman cross. Jesus perfectly fulfilled everything God the Father directed him to do, every single thing. Moses, on the other hand, you would say he fulfilled most everything, that the Lord directed him to do. Both, though, are powerful examples because here's the little reality check. Some of us think, and here's a secret for us, some of us think that the Christian life is just about resisting sin. You know, as long as I can keep from doing the, the bad stuff, you know, if I, can, if I can keep away from that, I'm good. I'm just riding it out until the Lord returns. But that's missing what the Christian life is actually intended to do. Much like Moses, much like Jesus, God has an intended plan for each one of us to fulfill. Things that he wants us to actually execute in our life. Things that he wants us to be doing, not just sitting back resisting sin. Really, if you think about it, our days are intended to be marked with faithfulness, faithfulness to us. Sure, for sure, not sinning and resisting sin and temptation, but also faithful to the different callings he has on your life. Sometimes it's a really big calling, a direction that you're supposed to head. That's a little bit less common, but more often it's the moment by moment nudges that the Holy Spirit gives in your life that you should be doing this, or you should be doing this. Here's an opportunity for you to represent Jesus Christ. I had a phone call from a uh, hearing a little bit about a, a relative in Ohio that was going through a hard time and, and just really felt in, a, in my spirit just a nudge that like, man, well, why don't you pick up and, and try to help out and, and, and cover a hotel night for this particular uh, uh, more distant relative? And so I was able to do that. Just actually, it was just uh, uh, last night, I had the opportunity to do that. Something about fulfilling something that the Lord was nudging you to do. Man, it's just so rewarding. It was so encouraging. You felt like, man, that's, that was something that God teed up perfectly for me to be able to fulfill. It might not be something like paying for a hotel, but maybe in your instance, maybe it's just a, a nudge of maybe sending a, a text to somebody that might need some encouragement. Maybe it's a, a nudge to stick a, around a, a little longer. And linger in a conversation with somebody that you know is going through a hard time. He nudges us if we're listening throughout our day. And the intention, much like Jesus, much like Moses, is for us to fulfill what he's lined up for us to do. So perseverance isn't just resisting sin. It's also being faithful to the different things that God calls us to throughout our day and our week. Continue with this idea or theme of perseverance in verse 3. It says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things That were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So, this is a bit of a clarification for a specific audience, for the people that loved to celebrate man. If you think about it, it makes sense. In a religion that was based on performance judaism celebrated made a big deal about people that checked off all the boxes of of obedience and moses for them was a hero in that arena somebody that really did great with being faithful to god someone that shined out shined above their peers or moses was a great example as someone that was faithful to god by no means, the author's making it clear here, no means is he a peer to God, to Jesus himself. So without demeaning Moses, our author explains that Jesus is in a completely different class than Moses. He should be, or Jesus is the one that should be their hero. He uses a couple of different examples here. He uses the difference between a house and its builder, where the house is great, But the builder is the one that deserves the glory. You can look at all the cool things that Moses was a part of. You got to consider though, the designer and coordinator of it all. Moses, if you think about it, was really just along for the ride. Think about it. God made the decision to choose this people group. Moses had no role in that. God made the decision to rescue the people from Egypt. Although Moses was there, God was the one sending the plagues. He then is the one that ultimately delivered them to the promised land. Moses had nothing to do with those walls falling down. He uses another example they'd be familiar with, a servant versus a son. While well, Moses was great. He was a faithful servant in comparison to Jesus, who is the son of God. There's a big gap between those two. Moses's job, we're told here, was to testify about what would be spoken later by Jesus. When Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in John five forty six, he mentions this. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So he's just trying, our author, to make sure that these people, these young Jewish believers, aren't going back to wanting to follow Moses. Now, you might say, as we're trying to apply this to our context, you might say, well, Pastor Scott, I don't really feel a, a tug. I'm not really feeling tempted to leave following Jesus and begin following Moses. But actually play the context out for a moment with me. For the audience, there's a strong temptation to go back to following the law, which was in essence to go back to Moses. Many of their families and friends would have rejected them after they embraced Jesus Christ and they left Judaism. Now they know that the rejection would diminish. It, It would become less and less of a deal If they went back to observing Jewish customs, if they were being, uh, if they were fulfilling, if they were observant Jews, they knew that that the uh, resistance would diminish. You think about it, they're trying to come up with a more palatable version of Christianity that makes themselves less offensive to the world around them. Aren't we, if we're honest, guilty of the same? trying to come with a version of Christianity that kind of works, that doesn't make us seem that weird, doesn't make us seem that different. We create a version of Christianity where we're really not set apart to really any degree. We have the same pursuits, the same entertainment. We have the same weekend plans, the same retirement goals. Is that really what the Lord called us to? Don't compromise by going back and uh, getting a more palatable version. Always drives me crazy when I hear different uh, people when they're talking about, uh, about Jesus in public. They move towards the more vague. They use the, uh, a title like God because we know everybody believes in a God, whether that's uh, Buddha or Gandhi. There's some kind of a higher power is another term that I hear. You see, these are non-committal terms, and he's pushing them to resist going back to the old way of of living and not adjusting to make your life more palatable for those around them. We'll pick up here in verse seven as he's describing this call to perseverance. It says, "'Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, "'Today, if you hear his voice, "'do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion "'on the day of testing in the wilderness, "'where your fathers put me to the test "'and saw my works for 40 years. "'Therefore, I was provoked with that generation.'" And said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But ex- exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened. By the deceitfulness of sin. Basically, this section can be a little bit confusing if we're not careful. But, uh, just to simplify a bit, the author's illustrating what a lack of perseverance looks like. And the Israelites, unfortunately, were a perfect example for him to use as they wandered in the wilderness. This would be a a story that they're all familiar with. The Israelites, despite their experience of God's rescue, his provision, they provoked God. How did they provoke God? By returning to their sinful ways, going back to their old habits, operating in the flesh. He warns us of the soul-crushing effects of a hardened heart of a hardened heart. What do we do to protect against this idea of a hardened heart? You see, a hardened heart is that that picture kind of like a callus, that over time, it's uh, without resistance. It, It gets harder and harder and harder, and it's more and more difficult to feel with a hardened heart. That's what he's warning us against. I think there's a lot of clues in this section as to what we do to resist a hardened heart. The first thing I identified as I was kind of working through it in my own study is this idea that says, do not harden your hearts. And you're like, well, what's relevant about that? The idea there that I wanted to point out is that sin is a choice. Sin is a choice. When the Holy Spirit convicts, we have a decision to make whether or not we respond or not. For us, the idea is that we have a choice to make an ownership to take. Our day is full of these crossroads where it's not something we can make it we can make it off like, well it was out of my control. I couldn't help myself. But if we're honest in our heart of hearts, we realize that sin is a choice. We have decisions to make as how we respond to temptation. And we're told, and even as Josh mentioned last week, that we're given the resources to resist to every temptation, which is always one that is common to man. Basically here, the idea that sin is a choice. Secondly, though you see it in the text there, verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So how do we resist being hardened, our heart becoming calloused and, and impenetrable? What does it say? It says to exhort, to exhort one another. In other words, this idea, we need encouragement. We need to be cheering each other on. I was having a lunch with a friend this past week and had an opportunity to talk with him and just say, man, you're doing great. Don't give up, keep going, keep persevering, keep staying the course. That's the idea of the body of Christ. And that's where, if you think about it, isolation is so dangerous because you don't have anybody that's identifying things that are going well and celebrating them and cheering them on kind of the same picture that we notice when we're raising our kids. Kids tend to do things that are celebrated, similar as we become adults. When something is celebrated, there's a tendency to want to move that direction. That's what he calls us to, to help resist against the hardness of one's heart. If you're not in a community, if you're not surrounded by people that are nudging you, that are saying, hey, good job, that are willing to say, hey, you need to push that aside. You need to move towards this, resist that. If you don't have that, man, we leave ourselves in such a vulnerable place for becoming just more and more calloused, hardened, where we don't notice when we're heading towards sin. There's there's no alarms going off anymore. He warns us against that. The third thing that I would say that he identifies that helps keeping us move towards a soft heart is in that same verse. It says that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I think it's so important in that description for us to understand this picture of the deceitfulness of sin. I've mentioned it before in other sermons in the past, but it's such an important description to understand that sin doesn't deliver on its promises. Sin doesn't deliver on its promises. The things that it entices you towards, oh, if you partake in this, it's gonna be so awesome. It's gonna be so amazing. Remember when I was in high school, there was such a strong pull towards drinking and partying and having a good time. And there's everything that said, man, just just enjoy yourself. So ironic now to watch so many people that are kind of, now that they've gone that route, the life that they're now experiencing, where they're enslaved to alcohol, where they're stuck in a rut, where they can't break out of that. All the things that promised later were exposed as deceit. You see, it's important for us. Once you expose something as not as great as it appears, it no longer what? It's not as near as enticing. As a little kid, I remember growing up and I used to uh, do, have these different games. I had these matchbox cars with uh, growing up and my, my sister would sometimes be nice enough to hang around and play with me. And we'd create these forts and things that would pretend they're garages and talk about what it would be like to someday be super wealthy. And I remember anytime you talked about wealth, you always mentioned and just sitting back and enjoying caviar, Do you remember that as a kid where caviar was elevated as this thing that like, man, if you were just, if you ever really made it, you could enjoy caviar. Well, a number of years back, I was at some kind of a get together and they had caviar on this tray and were serving it with crackers. I was like, man, this is kind of cool. I've always in my whole life thought it'd be awesome to try caviar. I don't know if you've had a chance to try caviar, but to be honest with you, I sampled some and I'm like, that's kind of gross. I don't care how wealthy I become. That's not something that I want as a staple part of my diet. You see, once I was exposed to it and the deceit of it being something tasty and desired, all of a sudden, it no longer has an appeal. For me, I don't care how many billions I were to be handed, I would not be a partaker of caviar. See, that's the same idea as when we begin to expose sin For the liar that it is, all of a sudden, its grip and hold on us no longer can hold tight. Continue. So soft hearts, this last section, true belief. I'll explain what that means in a moment. Verse 14 says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was, the provo- was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that we were unable to enter because of unbelief, because of unbelief. Now, I want to start our conversation just in this very last section by pointing out some important words. It says, uh, it, it says right out of the gates, those who share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. So basically, that's a text that people have wrestled with for years and years because really it leads to debate over what does eternal uh, or, or is there potential of losing one's salvation? And really in Christendom, there's kind of three camps as it relates to eternal security. In this picture, the first one, the first camp would say that one can lose their salvation. Well, they they may have accepted it originally, but they can walk away from their original faith. That's one camp. A second camp would say, once saved, always saved. They believe that nothing can be done on the other side of conversion to cause you to lose what was gained. Many many of these people still clinging to a, a childhood prayer. Uh, maybe it's something that happened in Sunday school and they're like, hey, it doesn't matter how far you wander, you are still secure. So that's camp number one, can't lose, uh, can lose salvation. Camp number two would say you can't lose salvation. And camp number three, and this would be the camp that it probably describes uh, where I land best. It's known as Reformed Theology. They believe this. That you can't lose your salvation, but there are false conversions. I'll repeat that. They believe that you can't lose your salvation, but there are examples of false conversions. Where someone may have professed faith, but later they fell away from it, exposing that their faith was never genuine and never from God. You see, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a powerful parable. Maybe you remember this one, it is the parable of the different seeds that were thrown out and landing in different types of soil. And some of them took root and it took the plant took off. And others it started to but then was eventually died. Others it never even took root. See, I believe and many believe in this kind of camp three that it's something to this idea of belief, that it's much more of a profound meaning than we may think it has. It's more than just mental assent. If you think about it, you remember Jesus's brother, James, when he's talking about the demons, he says, even the demons believe, they even believe and tremble. The point that he was making is it wasn't an issue of just mental assent. There was a connection between our actions as a demonstration of what we actually believe. So how do we demonstrate that we actually believe something? Well, an example that our author uses, the, ex- the Israelites in their time in the wilderness showed their unbelief by their actions. So flip that, that coin to the other side, same thing would be true. Same would be true with belief. You demonstrate your belief by your actions. I'll give a, a, maybe a more simple present day illustration. If I told you, if I communicated to you right now, if I said, listen, I'll tell you what, Tifa is a gelato shop. If you go there and you try, there's strawberry balsamic gelato, your life will never be the same. Now, if you actually took my word for it, and you actually went there, we actually have a, a family for, from our church, the Ong family that owns the Tifa uh, over in Thousand Oaks by the DMV, you definitely need to try it out. But if you actually, actually believed what I said about it being life-changing, what would happen? You would say, well, man, sign me up. I, I'm, I'm, I'm open to this. I, I got to get there. You'd be hopping in your car. Your belief in what your pastor just shared with you would be demonstrated by getting in the car and heading there. You see, that's, that's the idea here is that belief is moves us towards action. That's what he's getting at. That what does true belief look like? I was reading this week in my study, uh, an author, his name is Michael Novak, kind of a, would say a Christian philosopher that he identifies three different types of belief. In his book, it's entitled Belief and Unbelief. The first uh, idea of belief would be the, uh, what we describe as our public convictions, public convictions. That's the first type of belief and the public convictions would be the things that I state in public. As I'm interacting with the world, this is what I would say that I believe. And really, if you think about it, we're our, our own personal uh, PR agents. And so we like to come across a certain way. And so he identifies that in the book as the uh, part of that reality. And so our, our public convictions aren't necessarily always accurate. It's not always intended to be something that we are dishonest about, but they don't always reflect reality. So public convictions would be one group of our beliefs. Second group would be our private convictions. And this would be what I actually think I believe. These are unfortunately, especially unreliable because we think of ourselves more highly than we should. But this is really if someone were to depress us, what we'd say, yeah, I, I think I believe that. And the third area of belief, so it's public convictions, private convictions. The third one would be core beliefs. And what our core beliefs are, we actually don't detour from. Our core beliefs are actually reflect what we truly do believe. it's one of those things where you're like, hey, don't listen to what I say. Watch what I do to actually see what I really, in my heart of hearts, believe. I'll give an example of this, maybe not an example that makes me look like much of a hero, but I would say I publicly would, my public conviction on using bad words is saying, man, it's just not appropriate. There's just not a a time where that's necessary. I'd publicly say that and be pretty convinced uh, that I was being accurate. And then similarly, my Private convictions would be saying, you know, using bad words, any kind of uh, uh, inappropriate language, not, not wise, uh, I don't approve. And I, and I believe that in my heart. But then here's the third one, core beliefs. And so what I say publicly about swear words, what I say privately, they are. But then when your 15-year-old daughter discovers the difference between gas and brakes in your driveway there's a certain word describing excrement that may have slipped out. You see, the core beliefs Come out when you're testing. Yes, you can see some pictures there of the collision with my actual uh, home. And you might say, well, isn't that kind of cruel of you to share pictures and talk about your 15-year-old daughter? Here was our agreement. The agreement was I'll pay for the damage and the payment from her is the use of that story from this day forward. So colliding uh, with the house. But here's what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. He's pointing to what? a gap. He's pointing to the gap that we experience in these three worlds, public, private, and then actually core. The the gap is this, where our actions actually begin to expose our lack of faith. Now, in the example he used, it was the Israelites as the example of man, that they demonstrated a lack of faith by their behavior in the wilderness. And you might say, when you hear sections like this, and you're just like, share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. You're like, well, hold my original confidence to the end. That, that means demonstrate belief all the way through with my actions. I'm in really big trouble here if that's the requirement. But I think it's important for us to understand what belief means in the whole scope of Scripture. Belief is the description of a progression, not an arrival. It's a, not something that you're like, man, I have fully arrived. Where my actions perfectly reflect my stated beliefs, I am there. That's not the idea here. The first thing I wanted to point out is in the example that's given, as God being provoked by their actions, what does it say? How long did that last? For 40 years, again and again, revealing the same hard hearts, again and again. There is an intention of God seeing a change, a transformation, a progression in the life of a believer. I'm always encouraged with this story that's found in Mark chapter 9, and we're going to end with this, where a father, that tells the story of a father who brings his demon-possessed son to the disciples to have them cast the demon out. Now, Jesus shows up on the scene and the disciples were unable to do anything about it. And Jesus makes comments about the unbelief of their generation. But then he asked the father whether or not he believes. And what's always stuck with me that's kind of a strange response was the father's response to Jesus' question. He says in Mark chapter nine, he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, upon first reading, you're like, uh, you're like, I believe, but help my unbelief. Which one is it? Are you, do you believe or is it unbelief? I really think this is a beautiful, authentic description of where a Christ follower needs to be. This man is saying, I do believe, but help me believe more. It's a, it's a, it's a posture of, of dependence, a desire to grow more, an a, a intention for there to be progression in my belief. And you notice Jesus's response there in Mark chapter nine. He's like, he heals the kid, casts the demon out. Everything goes back to having his son restored. You see, I believe in this topic of belief, in this topic of salvation, that there's a certain humility that comes that demonstrates the posture that our God wants to see in our perseverance. He wants to see us coming before him. God, I believe but help me to keep developing and growing in my, de- in my unbelief so that when circumstances like collisions with cars and uh, houses happens, all of a sudden there's a consistency between what I say publicly, what I believe privately, and what my core beliefs are. You see, our God is in the business of transformation. That's why this text is encouraging these people. Persevere. Look at these examples of faithfulness. Don't give up. Don't go back to your old way of d- doing things. Don't slip back into that. Keep on going, e- encouraging each other to stay the course. He, will, he is faithful to complete what he began in each one of us. Praise God for that. Let's close in song. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this chance uh, just before we sing this last song, God, to, to, to point towards you as the author and finisher of our salvation. You are the builder, the designer. It's your plan that you put in place. Your plan of rescue that was perfectly fulfilled by Jesus Christ so that you could be a a high priest that relates with us, that understands, that's compassionate towards us, but then calls us to belief and not to unbelief that's demonstrated in our disobedience that calls us towards a progression of becoming more and more like you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your patience that you accept us when we have a bit of belief, but still wanting to to grow in our unbelief. I pray that that would be our posture, even going into the week ahead. That we'd be looking for opportunities to be faithful to you. We'd be looking for opportunities, not just to resist sin, but to actually fulfill the different callings that you place on on our lives, even in the week ahead. Thank you for all of this. Thank you for this direction, even in your Word. Now we celebrate you, even in song. In Jesus Christ's name, Amen.
2: What is a hope in life and earth? Christ alone. our days within his hand, what comes apart from his command, and what will keep us to the end, the love of Christ in which we stand, oh say a lasting life with him there we will rise to meet the Lord and sin and death
0: church as usual. Uh, always feel the freedom uh, to to text us during the week, to reach out. We are thrilled to be able to serve you in any capacity that we can. My hope is that you take these things and we're not just hearers of the word, but we're doers of the word in response to it. Thanks again for being with us online. God bless you.